Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that came 625th in the Fake News Awards for calling Trump in an earlier episode a radioactive hate gibbon. Apparently, despite obvious hazardous outbursts, he is definitely a very stable hate gibbon. I'm sorry, everyone. This is episode 87, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and as French president and head boy at school, well, at least according to his wife, Emmanuel Macron has agreed to loan the Bayou Tapestry for display in the UK, I think that we should give France, in return, a collection of prominent Brexiteers' promises, as that would also be quite a large collection of historically inaccurate woolly yarns. Along with pastries, kisses and saying the word happiness in the funniest way possible, oh, and fries, the French have now added clear-speaking politicians to the list of things that they do better than us Brits. During his first visit to the UK since becoming French president, or President Brie, as it's known to uh, just me at home, um, Emmanuel Macron spoke to Andrew Marr on his BBC show and to the shock of the nation actually answered questions. I know, right? It was so weird. And he did it in his second language as well. Bonkers. Macron said that if the UK wanted access to the single market, it's either stay in the EU, otherwise it's Norway or the poorly funded, badly regulated highway, which leaves all the Brexiteer notions of cake eating and cherry picking firmly without any dessert options on the table, apart from, as usual, an eaten mess. In this case, the Eton mess, as with most cases, was soft play area gargoyle and Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, who proposed the best way to make secure relations between France and the UK was a cross-channel bridge, because despite the amount of time that he spends with his head in the sand, he hasn't noticed the whacking great tunnel we already have. This bridge idea has already been discarded by the European Commission, probably after realising that Boris's other failed projects have included a garden bridge that had lost the plot before it started, an airport island that never took off in the first place and a cable car in the only area of London that had nothing to see on ground level. So we'll never know if Boris's bridge was going to be an arch villain one, a suspension of belief one, a Liz Truss one or just an expensive shit one. I'm sure we can all guess. Prime Minister and old Austrian myth used to scare children, Theresa May, pledged to give £44.5 million towards strengthening the French border with CCTV detection technology and fencing. Because, you know, nothing wards off illegal immigrants like fancy swordplay. Theresa May said this investment was necessary because it's important to protect the United Kingdom border in Calais. Though I can't help but wonder if France have just cleverly worked out how to pay for their version of Trump's wall in order to keep our future post-Brexit economic migrants out. In return for this fee, France is loaning the UK the Bayou Tapestry, an embroidered cloth depicting the Norman conquest of England, which could be taken as a very subtle hint to how France really feel about the UK adopting a Norway-style deal. Over in America, the US government is shut down. The Senate can't agree, so it's shut down. Trump says it's not me and it's shut down. But Democrats are angry, so it's shut down. Huge apologies to Skepta. Yeah, exactly. One year into Trump presidency, all government departments have been rendered completely useless. And an event that I like to call the perfect analogy. 
The Democrats blocked a spending bill in the Senate because President Trump, aka the Badger Blimp, backed out of an immigration deal. Of course, Trump has publicly blamed Chuck Schumer for the shutdown. He's the Senate minority leader who led the Democrats to block the bill. But everyone else is blaming Trump because, well, I mean, look at him. You can't just reject bills last minute because you can't remember what they're about or who you are or what your job is or how to put your trousers on the right way round. This all closed a week of American politics also saw Trump's fake news awards involve a tweet linking to the GOP website that then promptly crashed because they're clearly trying to gaslight your history as well. Then the White House physician said that Trump is in excellent physical and mental health, although he didn't say for what. I'm guessing on his two Big Macs and one fillet of fish a day diet, he meant excellent health for, say, one member of Jabba the Hutt's family or a depressed manatee. Meanwhile, a story has emerged about Trump paying off a porn star to cover up that he slept with her in 2006 while Melania was at home with their four-month-old son. Part of the story includes Stormy Daniels, uh, so-called because Wendy Stewart didn't work quite as well for a porn star name. She, at one point, had to spank Trump with a copy of Forbes magazine that had him on the cover, which must have been very confusing, slapping an ass with a face like a slapped ass. 2018 is already a year where we can now say that the President of America has probably paid off a porn star, asked a doctor to lie, and caused an entire government to stop working. And we're still only in January. Fingers crossed this shutdown is one that can't be fixed with a quick restart, but instead needs an entire reboot with a whole new operating system. In other news, the liquidation of facilities management and construction services company Carillion continues to raise questions after it appeared that the government awarded them several public sector contracts, despite knowing they were in distress. I mean, it's hugely unlike the government to reward failure like that, isn't it? We know, apart from with their own MPs and Prime Minister. Labour leader and regular bit part in 90s kids cartoon David the Gnome, Jeremy Corbyn, said that the collapse of Carillion was a watershed moment, which I guess is because straight after it happened, everyone involved said fuck quite a lot. The government have appointed Tracy Crouch as Minister for Loneliness, which, considering how they've handled other areas to do with social care, I wouldn't be surprised if they fail to give her a department and make her work all by herself. John Lansman, the founder of grassroots group Momentum, along with two other left-wing candidates, were elected to Labour's National Executive Committee in election results last week, beating Eddie Izzard to the post by 25,000 votes. I mean, who wants a comedian in charge of the direction of the party anyway? Every time you think you're getting somewhere, there'd be half a tonne of weird tangents, and when you finally think you've got some sort of conclusion, Izzard would then walk back on to do ten more minutes. Landsman said this election would bring the dream of a members-led Labour Party one step closer, which mainly says to me that he has really, really boring dreams, as my last one was about being part of a sort of Mad Max-style tournament, but where everyone could only fight using cutlery or babies' toys. I mean, I hope that's what Landsman means, as it'll make the next set of candidate selections really, really watchable. And lastly, UKIP's leader Henry Bolton is facing calls to quit after the NEC gave him a vote of no confidence, which means for the first time ever, I agree with them on something. Now, all they need to do is continue to have no confidence in any future leaders or former leaders, the NEC themselves, all of their policies and their members, and then we can be pals. These calls to quit follow the leaking of racist texts from Bolton's girlfriend, who he says he has now ended the romantic element of his relationship with. And by that, I'm guessing they've just continued to be together after six months. Several UKIP spokespeople have resigned from their posts in protest, but at the time of recording, Bolton is refusing to step down. And I don't know about you, but I find it bloody hilarious that the leader of UKIP is now an ardent Remainer. Salutations, pod listeners. How are you? Oh, really? That's a shame, but there is a lot of it going around. I hear, though, you can get rid of that with some lemon juice and trepanning, so worth a try. You know, I really might start a petition to bring back trepanning. I mean, think of all the stuff you could keep in a hole in your head. Your phone, your keys, a pet bird. Oh, but what about when it rains? Yeah, good point. Petition cancelled. What am I on about? No idea. But I am very glad you're listening to it. And thank you uh, to all of you who sent congratulations and just sort of general warnings about my impending parenthood uh, that you sent over the last week when I mentioned it on last week's show. Um, We've got about seven weeks to go until baby dom, baby launching. Um, And not that sounds weird. It sounds like you're firing babies into the sky. That is not what's going to happen. I sort of meant like the launching, uh, you know, of a new thing. Anyway, um, I spent the weekend clearing out loads and loads of stuff 
stuff uh, that we don't need, like, well, you know, pretty much anything I own, uh, in order to make space for baby stuff. And I still don't understand how someone so small is going to need so many things. Anyway, uh, the clearing out resulted at one point with me being trapped in the corner of a room for about two hours, having accidentally constructed a wall of old crap around myself, and somehow one of our houseplants had a chair, but I didn't. I spend a lot of my days very unsure of my adult status, as you can probably guess. Um, thanks also to Graham for the Kofi donation, and if you, you there, would like to donate towards this podcast being better and having less trepanning talk, or even more trepanning talk if you think it fills a gap or makes one, um, then you can do a one-off donation to Kofi.com. that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro, and you can do a donation there of £3 or more, or you can join the Patreon for a regular donation at patreon.com forward slash parpolebro. And as I say often on this show, um, I do this show because if I didn't, I'd spend a lot of my day screaming at people in the park, probably about trepanning. So this show will always be free because I just have to get it out. But if you do have any spare moolah, then every penny I get as a donation, I will use to justify taking time off doing gigs in order to write and research this instead um, and find better guests, etc, etc, etc. So ultimately, I'm hoping that through generosity, I'll be able to stop leaving my home altogether by about 2021. So please help towards that cause. Um, And if you don't want to donate, then please do give the show a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Podgland or CastVom or whatever your favourite made-up podcast provider may be. Not much admin this week, but I did quickly want to say that I've had some very lovely suggestions from all of you as to who to interview on this show and who to get in contact with. But quite a few of you have recommended various MPs, which is something I said way back when I started this that I wouldn't do on this stupid podcast. Um, Originally, I didn't want politicians on this show because I thought rather you know, than allow people who are already on TV and radio news shows and things like The Guardian or Times podcast to just come on here and then push their party agenda. I thought it'd be more interesting to get other political voices on who can talk without needing to spend every two minutes complaining about how they're not as shit as the other shit lot, you know? Um, I get sort of really bored of that and I find that things like Question Time and all those sort of shows make me just want to shout at things. Um, Also, because I do a lot of these interviews over Skype and I like allowing people to just talk, I don't feel I've got the ability to question um, things as much as I would like to with a politician uh, because they can just hang up um, which to be fair could be quite fun but it will also leave me without a lot of content but look I'm open to suggestion if you think I should change this sort of half policy then let me know and perhaps I can get an MP maybe in to talk about a cross party issue so they won't blabber on about their own party as much or maybe you know I could get Jacob Rees-Mogg to just come on and talk about what it was like terrorising the Baudelaire children during all their unfortunate events let me know oh and really important my most recently filmed comedy special, Miserably Happy, is now exclusively on nextupcomedy.com. Um, it is a subscription site, but don't let that put you off because the first month of it is completely free, and then after that it's only £3.50 a month, and there are loads and loads of other brilliant comedy specials from lots of brilliant, mainly UK comedians on there as well. Um, if you've got Amazon Video on your tellies, um, then you can find Next Up Comedy on there too and watch it on your TV, which is exciting. It's like the future and stuff. Um, so please do head to Next Up Comedy comedy.com forward slash Tiernan and give it a watch um, I hope I think you'll like it it's a whole load of me just doing jokes about how shit everything is so you know if you enjoy this podcast you'll probably go oh it's more of that then give it a watch this week I have a very fun chat with Penny Andrews all about political fandom for all you Corbynistas Millifans Mayites and um, massive Johnsons out there plus uh, Carillion Brexillion and Jokes by the Million okay well by the few okay there are about four jokes but look they're really good ones okay look one one is good. one is a one one is okay look before all that though let's kick off with a little bit of this Minister for Loneliness sounds like the name of a badly written comic book assassin, but while you might immediately worry that this is part of a government rebranding that will then be followed up with appointments for a minister of when you think there's someone behind you but there isn't, and the minister for that really unpleasant feeling when you bite into a sandwich and your teeth crunch on something, actually... Tracy Crouch's new job as Minister for Loneliness is a really important one. Loneliness is a big issue in the UK, with research saying that over 9 million people feel often or always lonely, which is a really depressing statistic, especially considering that if they all knew that, maybe they could all hang out together. Imagine that. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? In 2014, the UK was deemed one of the loneliest countries in Europe, which 
you know, hey, now at least we're not going to get labelled with that again now we've left all those guys. <laughs> Am I right? Oh. While I'm just being a bit silly to make light of a very sad situation, there are a number of quite serious factors that have caused this increase in loneliness. These include longer work hours. Um, For young people, there's social media because, you know, it's awful for everything. And not just because it bores people to death through having to witness the millions and millions of same jokes about Kim and Kanye's new baby. No, you can't call a baby Rose West. That is awful. Stop it. Um, But also, and especially with the elderly, uh, a very big factor in loneliness has been the closure of public facilities facilities such as libraries and community centres which provide places for people to go at no cost and be around other people. More than 400 libraries and 140 mobile libraries have closed since 2010 which you don't hear a lot about because you know every time someone pipes up about libraries they get really shh. But while you could argue that access to books is easy online and therefore libraries aren't so necessary, it's a crap argument, so stop it. Because online books don't provide face-to-face interaction with other real human beings. And for the 12.6 million adults in the UK without basic digital skills, they're left lonely and without resources as well. Tracy Crouch and her department are going to be looking into ways to tackle loneliness throughout the year, um, presumably as a team, I hope. Um, First step, though, they should probably put funding into reopening or building new community spaces. And then, I guess, maybe they should ban Twitter and have a really big party for 9 million people with free tequila shots. What do you mean that's not how you make proper friends? Oh... Oh dear, I guess that's why none of them call me back. Seriously though, if you do feel lonely, then there are a number of charities that you can reach out to for help, including the Samaritans, who are available 24-7 on 116123, or via email at joe at And if you're under 25, there's also The Mix, who are brilliant, and you can call them on free phone 0808 or via email or live message on their site at themix.org.uk. Failing that, drop me a line and I'll hang out with you immediately and within about five minutes you'll demand some space. Um, Or at least that's what happens with my wife anyway. I've been a member of a few fan clubs in my life, yeah, uh, boasting just a little bit there. Um, Probably the most memorable was the He-Man Masters of the Universe fan club, uh, which I joined at a very young age in the 80s. And uh, you got a crappy red vinyl with it, with the He-Man theme on one side and the Beastman theme on the other side, which is exactly the same as the He-Man theme, but with slightly different words it was hugely disappointing um, and then you got some stickers uh, which were cool and then you got a card which had your secret code name on it and I was well excited because my card said Tarandobor and I thought that's my cool code name that's brilliant um, until I saw my friend's card and his just had his normal name on it and I realized that actually they just really misspelled my name again and that everyone lets me down sad sad times anyway uh, some politicians also have fan clubs, or at least fans. Uh, yes, really, I know that sounds weird, but most recently there have been Cameroons and Millifans and Corbynistas and weirdly, of course, Mogmentum supporters, because they probably hope that, like with Despicable Me, they'll end up with their own far more popular offshoot franchise. But political fandom goes back a very long way, much like Reese Mogg's politics, and it's actually more important to the political world than just some fancy badges, classy memes, or, you know, people shouting at you on Twitter because you've criticised their idol with a silly joke. <clears throat> No. Actually, political fandom can help with activism, the humanising of the role of politicians and an awareness about what they do. This week, I spoke to Penny Andrews, an expert in political fandom, but also social media and quantified work. Most recently, Penny has written a conference paper on Thatcher fandom for the Thatcherism Now event in April and several talks on GIFs, memes, politics and Ed Balls Day at a number of academic conferences. They explained to me exactly why political fandom is an important part of all politics, what's it all about, and why, hey, we should all better get our Sir Desmond Swain pin badges ready because Sleepy Swain is clearly going to be the next big hit, you know, with his face like a stupid dog and is falling asleep in the commons all the time like a stupid dog. I'm already planning a ton of dog animations of Swain, the big Brexiteer, saying things like, I'll only go for a walk away from Brussels, etc, etc. Okay, we didn't... We didn't really discuss that at all, but I did have a very fun and absolutely fascinating chat with Penny. So I hope you enjoy. Here's Penny. My first question for you is probably a really obvious one and feel free to absolutely school me on this. But what is political fandom and how exactly does it affect politics in general? Well, different people sort of define it differently. Um, A lot of the early stuff about political or politics fandom was written about American politics, which 
operates somewhat differently than here due to the presidential system and stuff like that. Um, but the way I define it is um, having great enthusiasm either for politics or for individual politicians or a particular party. And that's kind of at the sort of broadest level what I think it is. And it's a useful lens for, I hate the word lens, it's so academia uses it all the time, but it's a useful way of viewing how politics works because there are people who perhaps would say at the moment, oh, all of these politicians who are anti-Brexit or who are anti-Corbyn should join another party or form a new party. And apart from the way that our two parties first past the post, um, it's also naive about how people feel about politics. It's Tribal is kind of used in a dismissive and unpleasant way, but it's not necessarily that people are tribal, but you can't get people to be an activist and march up and down the streets, you know, putting endless uh, leaflets through letterboxes and talking to people who are just horrible to you if you don't really, really, really love your party or you don't really love your candidate. And while people will make horrible comments, say, about people who like a particular politician as uh, of whoever dismissive about it it's actually not that different to supporting a football team in terms of how people feel about their party i mean is this you said it originally rated to sort of um us politicians and the us system there mm. when when did it start in the uk like when when would you say the earliest because well, i mean there's there's a difference is there a difference between political fandom and say just admiring a politician or admiring a political figure? Um, yeah, I think it probably goes deeper. I think it has this kind of fanish aspect to it. I mean, if you look at, say, Doctor Who as a comparator, which I do all the time because it's really <laughs> like comparing Doctor Who and the Labour Party <laughs> and the way that people will go, oh, Doctor Who died today and hate a particular era of Doctor Who is similar to how people talk about their political party. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know people have people have fanish behaviors towards doctor who you know and people talk people who are really into doctor who talk about doctor who in a way that's alien to the way most of the audience watches doctor who you know russell t davis used to say that only one in ten people who watch doctor who watch every episode of doctor who and a lot of those people would consider themselves they like doctor who they would talk to other people about doctor who but they're not fans they don't watch every episode. And even watching every episode doesn't make you a fan because you read stuff about it. You might buy stuff to do with it. And people do that with politics as well. I mean, people people might not consider themselves to be a politics fan themselves. But if you're obsessively following all of the political journalists on Twitter or you watch PMQs or you watch This Week or you go to conference or anything like that, clearly you are a politics fan, whereas your average person doesn't even keep up with policy, let alone do more than once, vote every once every four years or five years or every year, as it seems to be at the moment, if you're Brenda from Bristol. Sure. I mean, I did I did worryingly tick all of those boxes you just mentioned, which uh, slightly terrifies me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, that, that is one of the things I'm, I'm constantly amazed about is sort of when I do stand up gigs, the amount of times the people in the audience uh, don't know what I'm talking about. I have to sort of refer to news from a couple of weeks ago or they don't know specific politicians, which probably says more about how I should really think more about my material than it does them. But um, but it, it's. Then my my concern would be with things like that is, and as as I've come across with say angry Doctor Who fans before, people get quite um, you know emotionally attached, quite protective when it when it's a fandom, it's something that's very passionate and very personal, and therefore if anyone tries to come in and change that, it can get quite uh, quite nasty. Oh yeah, people get defensive, you know, and there there there's always been a thing certainly within the Labour Party, and I think with the Lib Dems and the Tories as well that parties have different groups in control of the party at various different times. And if you used to be in the one that was up front and then now you're in like a different era of the show, if you like, people get very upset and defend the old way as if that was the only way and then talk about the new people as if they're entryists and as if they don't really get the show. <laughs> and it's they talk about, say, Jeremy Corbyn supporters as if they're fans and then Jeremy Corbyn supporters will be very defensive of Jeremy Corbyn and then accuse those people of being Blairite stands or whatever. Or, there's, you know, in the Lib Dems, there's a kind of war between the orange bookers and then people who are perhaps more left wing. 
less um, economically liberal. And it's not like political fandom is new. I mean, people are obsessed with Winston Churchill still as a figure. You can still buy lots of Winston Churchill merchandise. People are very into it. People stand for Clement Attlee, I'm sure. Obviously, there's the big Thatcher thing. And it really goes back a long way to like Gladstone and Disraeli. I mean, when Disraeli died, he got his own day. You can't imagine that happening with an MP now. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tim Farrande or something would be weird, wouldn't it? They'd be... <laughs> I know, the crowd, crowds did turn out to see those politicians go on tour. And it's more complicated than thinking, well, it's about power or it's about idiots and celebrity, because it's not really like that. It's about people having hope in something. People turned out for Obama. People turn out for Trump. So is there is there a danger then with any of this? Um, because I presume, like you mentioned earlier, there's obviously positives in that it can encourage people to really campaign on behalf of someone or really kind of, um, you know, kind of push for political policies based on the person that, that uh, that's pushing them in, in, in Parliament. But is there also a danger then that people focus on the personality or the celebrity of the politician rather than their actual, um, you know, what they're doing in office? I think there is a bit of that, but I think there's always been that, you know, and it's it's wrong to assume that it's just about populism or it's just about now because people have always reacted to the person. And certainly the general public have always done that. The general public couldn't really tell you that much about most of the policies, even during a general election, general election campaign. It is about the personality and it's about how the media portrays the personality and then how those things get picked up and taken on in general conversation. I mean, I know that, you know, everyone knows that I love Ed Balls, but I mean, Ed, Ed, Ed Balls will talk about, you know, people who said when he left politics and when he did things like Strictly, they say, oh, we knew you were a politician, but we never knew you were, you were human. And he's like, oh, I was always human, but it wasn't always covered. And even when it was covered, like he did things like his piano exams and he played cricket and football and he demonstrated having what Dennis Healy would call a hinterland. But he was still perceived in a very narrow stereotype way as a politician until he was allowed to be, if you like, a celebrity. Sure, that's very much what happened to Ed Miliband as well. I'd say Ed Miliband in, in many ways is uh, sort of more, much more likeable now in that he's doing a podcast, he's really able to express himself. Whereas when he was in office, it was kind of, I mean, personally, I felt often overshadowed by like Labour's immigration policies or whatever, you know, you didn't, yeah. you know. But, but then is there something, into it? because I, I'd say like... Uh, from looking at what political fandom is, personally, I'd say now the main one is, is probably for Corbyn with worryingly mm. a bit for Jacob Rees-Mogg, which we'll get to in a minute. But it, 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 I sort of interpreted, maybe I've interpreted this wrongly, but I felt a lot of Corbyn's fandom came from this um, sort of reaction that perhaps the last bunch of MPs were all the same. That's what a lot of people said. But obviously that's not the case if if there was kind of Ed Balls and Ed Miliband fandom and then there was there's been fandom previously is it just desperate are people just desperate to find a human side is there something to that i think i think people are definitely looking for something different than that kind of technocratic uh post post post-war well post we had the post-war consensus and then after that we had that kind of post that liberal slash neoliberal consensus depending on where you're coming from so from thatcher and reagan sort of onwards things haven't really changed that much and it's been a kind of a particular style of of government with consensus on certain things and obviously Trump broke that and Brexit broke that and people are looking for something perhaps more authentic so people love the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has an allotment and has pictures of him taken of him with a giant marrow whereas you know when David Miliband had a picture of himself with a banana that was a joke but it didn't make him pure you know in internet language (laughs) (laughs) so I think people are looking for politicians to be more human and I know that um, Ed Miliband's talked about how when he was leader he couldn't be the way he is on Twitter now then because you were being watched all the time and everyone would jump on the slightest thing you said. But that's kind of a shame because if people had been able to see what they see of Ed Miliband now, they would have probably liked him more. And Jeremy Corbyn has never been never been somebody who's put up that side or perceived never to have put up that side. So people like him being him. People liked him going on the one show in the way that Theresa May didn't and didn't get on so well. And I think... Um, 
I, I joked during the election campaign that nobody would get, ever get a selfie with Theresa May. <laughs> you know, and that shows you why it's never going to work. And it's true. Like, if, even if you look online now, the only selfies with Theresa May are from those expensive dinners where donors pay to spend time with her, whereas obviously politicians from other parties across the board, you know, have kind of embraced that social media thing and just being personable, being real people. And, and that's what people want. And is that something, I mean, because, you know, you mentioned sort of Disraeli or Winston Churchill, they didn't have social media then, uh, unless uh, the top secret somehow. Uh, but, 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 you know, like now you've got much greater access to people. Um, so how much of this now is, is, is politicians that just have a good grasp of social media you know like, i mean corbyn was i remember he got it was a, a snapchat quite early on wasn't it you know <laughs> things like that and again can't quite imagine theresa may uh, having such a thing but you know how important is it that that politicians are personable on on as many different kind of social media outlets is that a key part i think people can become obsessed with it um and there's certainly there are people who've been promoted to minister recently who don't you know have a twitter profile have never up, updated their facebook and stuff like that but it it's one of the easiest ways to bring some of your personality to what you're doing and to be regularly in touch with people. And for some politicians, it's probably made them. I mean, not just Jeremy Corbyn and his Snapchat, and he clearly has a good team because there's no way he's doing that. <laughs> 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 but, you know, he knows how to get good people around him to do it. And Emily Thornbury with her very pure Instagram content, which is beautiful. Um, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, obviously, more recently picking that up. But I mean, James Cleverly for, Cleverly, for example, is now vice chairman of Conservative Party. And he's just basically a, a gobshite on Twitter, like a lot of us are. But people were talking him up to be, you know, a future leader, all that kind of thing. And I don't think he would have had anything like that attention as a relatively recent entry to par entrance to Parliament and a backbencher without it. That's that's very interesting. I mean, uh, but then I guess it can work the other way. If you know, we look at Toby Young recently, uh, who uh, personally I felt there was a number of reasons why he shouldn't have got his job, but the, the media focused on his really awful Twitter output. So it's obviously, yeah. you know, the world is watching what people are doing. You have to be quite careful. Uh, especially you do. Careful, yeah. Well, the first rule of the internet, I think, has always been don't be a dick, isn't it, right? Like, <laughs> it's the first rule of life. <laughs> Don't be a dick. If you're, if you're a dick, you're going to be caught out. And I think people can obsess with the idea that it's impossible to be. Certainly, some of the right wing commentators have said, "Oh, you can't, you can't speak your mind anymore because someone will dig it all up on Twitter, and it's terrible." I think we're going through a period where there's a lot of that happening, and there's certainly people like, you know, Paul Staines and his Guido Fawkes blog. He really likes to make new stories out of tiny things that happen on social media and get outrage and get comments and turn that into news in a kind of weird sort of alchemy. But I think this moment will pass where people are just digging up everything. And because pretty much everybody who will come into the house in the next, well, both houses or political life in the next 10 years will have had some sort of background online, whether it's on social media or other stuff they've done. You can't come out of nowhere and be a politician or a public figure anymore. So it's only going to be the actual awful stuff you do rather than the embarrassing stuff that you do that's going to let you down. Sure. Most people weren't posting what Jared O'Mara was posting at the age of 26 or whatever it was. Most people weren't posting in their 40s what Toby Young was posting. No. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Sure. And I guess this kind of greater understanding of someone uh, as well, as we sort of mentioned earlier, would help to lead to political fandom. If you've got an idea of someone's personality over however many years of Twitter and then they finally get to a, a decent place in office, it only gives people even more to attach to or to kind of feel like they've gained an image of someone. Well, that's it. And I think it helps gain, people gain social capital. There's less than, there's, the fact that we've got more gender diversity than we used to have in politics and we've got more ethnic diversity which is fantastic although we've got massive improvements still to make so it reflects anything like what the country's like and particularly in the cabinet at the moment which is obviously ludicrous you know it's white privately educated men predominantly but you know people who come from a background where they are not Jacob Rees-Mogg or they're not you know one of the Eton people and they don't come from if you like the 80s kind of world of politics where you could work your way up through trade unionism and stuff like that. In order to get any kind of social capital and 
and build up some support for you going anywhere near politics in the first place. But you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing all sorts of things, including talking to people on the doorstep and including social media, really. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with Penny in a minute, but first... And as he approached... The king said to him, Welcome to the castle of Corinthia. Give us all your gold and all your men. We'll take them, then we will completely Sorry about that, but not that sorry. I know Carillion sounds quite a lot like a prog rock band that your dad often tells you he saw live in the 70s at some now defunct venue, but now you know they're not the same since Steve Windwand and Phil Blau split up and now tour separately as Steve Windwand's Carillion and the Carillion Experience or something, but actually... Actually, Carillion and its recent collapse is a huge deal way bigger than when Phil Blau's got David Ladle to guest on the bass for their hit Run Marble Donkey Run at Drabfest. Instead, Carillion are a massive construction company, or were, with 43,000 staff around the world and half of those based in the UK. And back in 2016, Carillion was making £5.2 billion of sales and its business was worth at least £1 billion just last July. Then, due to delays in payments for work in the Middle East, as well as a number of public sector jobs that were delayed due to various difficulties, they had three profit warnings last year, lost £1.5 billion of value from their contracts, and to use clever technical terms, got completely fucked up by £900 million of debt and £600 million of pension deficit. Their shares collapsed, banks wouldn't lend them any more money, and now they're all deaded. And that's the proper term there. And that seems like quite a rapid collapse, maybe a quick decline that nobody saw coming, but actually... There's been indications that Carillion was getting too big for its steel cap boots back in 2013, when it failed to acquire construction company Balfour Betty as part of its massive acquisitions of lots and lots of other contractors. And financial experts noticed that they were taking over 120 days to pay subcontractors, so they were clearly on the sort of shaky ground that any sensible construction company would very much avoid building on. And all the way up to 2016, Carillion's annual report said that their dividends to shareholders were increasing, despite their ever-growing pension deficit. 
It's amazing how often shareholders ruin two nice words in one go, isn't it? I'd much prefer they take the words money and grabbers, be more appropriate. But still, after all that, Transport Secretary and one of the worst bits about the film Prometheus, Chris Grayling, still awarded Carillion a £6.6 billion joint venture contract for everyone's least favourite sequel. Well, apart from Prometheus, that's right, HS2. Yes, it seems Grayling, a persistent failure, rewarded a persistent failure with a persistent failure. I wouldn't be surprised if he next touted a huge government spend on a new chocolate teapot startup. Grayling has defended this decision by saying that it would have been unlawful to rule out a company from a consortium bid because of profit warnings, and actually, by giving them the contract, it saved them from collapsing earlier. Whereas I think, you know, hey, okay, reasonable excuse, but I'd cynically ask if actually the real reason they got the contract is because the chairman of Carillion, Philip Green, no, not the awful tax-dodging Philip Green who owns Topshop, but another awful Philip Green, was advisor to Theresa May on corporate responsibility. Yes, the man who was the chairman for a company that agreed to pay its former chief exec £660,000 in salary and £28,000 in benefits for nearly a year after he left, while being completely aware of the financial issues the company had, gave the Prime Minister advice on corporate self-regulation. Incredible. I really hope May's next hiring is for the ghost of Oliver Reed as an advisor for alcohol self-regulation. Carillion's demise is pretty grim news for the 20,000 employees, but also for the 450 governmental contracts to the value of about £16 billion, which they had in everything from HS2 to the Battersea Power Station redevelopment, or the 50 prisons they maintain, or the 218 schools they provide meals to, or the military personnel, or hospital beds, or a number of other public services that they managed. They were described as an integrated support services business, which is sort of like being a really greedy zombie parasite who takes over too many host bodies to the point where they can't really control them anymore, even though the decaying husks they now occupy really still need them to survive. There are lots of questions to be asked about what happened with Carillion, including not only choices made by the current government, but also the privatisation pushed forward by the previous new Labour government too, and the Conservative government before that. A number of stories have recently emerged about local councils having to return services back to in-house, which, you know, is a really cool new way of saying nationalised. Hey, how's your park service? Yeah, I got it in-house, etc, etc. That doesn't doesn't really work, does it? But this return to nationalising or in-housing is because private companies have a 15 to 25 year fixed price contract that have become completely unaffordable with constant local cuts. Councils are left shelling out tons and tons of dosh to companies that pay their workers low wage, give a crap service, and they can't do anything about it until the contract's up. I mean, I thought people only got suckered into deals that bad with iPhones. PFI deals or private finance initiatives were recently deemed by the National Audit Office to cost the taxpayer 40% more when it came to schools and 70% more for hospitals than it had been if they'd all been government funded. The Treasury insists that it only approves contracts that are value for money, but I'm not sure if they mean that it's value for money or that one is what they sacrifice for the other. Privatisation was seen as the better value for money way to bail out the public sector up until the last few years when it's been shown that that really hasn't worked, all the way from G4S forgetting to turn up for the Olympics and the army stepping in to issues with unqualified staff at Virgin Care to Eddie Stobart nearly running criminal aid to the big bailout of Virgin and Stagecoach's East Coast Rail where they got paid a lot of money because they were running it badly. It's like successive governments have realised how much of a British institution Faulty Towers was and felt that that needed to be commemorated in the most expensive way possible. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn said that this collapse is a political watershed moment and he might well be right as it's come at a point where not only the public but now also a large amount of civil servants are very keen to nationalise certain services again. But the first step is working out what to do with all of Carillion's jobs that they now can't do. Kia services have already stepped in to take over HS2 and highway contracts and Kia have also recently been given an £160 million public health contract for a bioscience facility in Harlow. Meanwhile, Galliford Try and Balfour Betty have taken on Carillion's Aberdeen bypass scheme, so it does seem like it could just all end up back in the hands of other private companies, which, hey, is a very good thing for workers, but probably quite bad for everyone else. It does also feel like it's just sort of restarting the full Carillion experience featuring David Ladle. For some excellent info on reasons to renationalise, do check out weownit.org.uk, who are a campaign to renationalise pretty much all public services, and I'd like to get them on this show at some point. And look, if you are the government and you're listening to this, 
Let me just say, I will happily do a really bad job at stuff for way less money, so why not do all the Carillion jobs in-house and properly, and then just chuck me a few grand a month, and I'll accidentally set fire to a kitchen while making toast or something. Deal? So just to move on to something that you mentioned, uh, well, and I mentioned earlier, but the, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg and his kind of the current political fandom surrounding him, that seems like um, a joke, really. To, you know, it sort of seems like an ironic kind of political fandom. Is that, I mean, is that a real thing? Is that a completely different area? Because, uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, obviously he's got a few hardcore real supporters, but a lot mm. of it seems to be people that are mocking his kind of eccentric, archaic ways. How does that differ from say, the political fandom of Corbyn at the moment? I think it's it's kind of always complex, because even within Corbyn's fandom, there are people who are just like, oh, yeah, Jez, he's the absolute boy. You know, or the, not most of the people who were screaming from at Glastonbury are not hardcore into his policies, <laughs> <laughs> or necessarily wearing the T-shirt. Sometimes people have a moment. Um, you know, we all had I Agree With Nick, you know, in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and there have definitely been politics fandom articles written by people like Cornel Sambos about that kind of plague-mania moment. Um, but the, and there's always been a kind of mocking element, but which is what happened with Boris Johnson. You know, it, it, he was that guy who was a joke who went on to Have I Got News For You? And people thought he was kind of fun. And that got him... London Mayor. It's um, it's not great, is it? So sometimes it's ironic, and sometimes it's thinking they're a laugh. But I think it's all fandom. Um, I think it tends to happen more with the right wing figures that they do start that way. But there are definitely people who really, really, really love right wing politicians. I mean, that was exploited with the kind of doomed youth wing of the Conservative Party. They had this whole battle bus that helped. Uh, help the Conservatives get their majority in 2015 and then loads of scandal came out about it because people were being sexually exploited and people were being bullied and stuff like that and part of how young young men in particular were being sexually exploited is because they were young Conservative activists, often student activists, who were very, very excited that they were going to meet, you know, this MP or this Tory grandee that they'd always kind of really admired and been a big fan of or you know, ever since they've been politically active and they got to go to their house and then, you know, bad things happen. So there's a dark side to the fandom and it's not all just lefties involved, really. Sure, I mean, would you say then in, in a way, uh, you know, because Donald Trump in a way started out as political fandom, didn't he? I mean, he was similar to Mock, was sort of largely mocked and then uh, ended up gaining some actual uh, sort of momentum and, and supporters through that. Yeah, well, there's a, a Demos report that's recently uh, come out. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, because I spend most of my time doing politics stuff online, so I never know if I'm pronouncing <laughs> yeah, it. I have exactly <laughs> yeah, the same problems, yeah. <laughs> you know, an autodidact who reads too much. Um, but they specifically spoke to mostly people who were over 55, mostly white, mostly leave voters. And when they asked them which um, sort of politicians they'd heard of or what they knew about, you know, Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg came fairly high up there, along with obviously Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. And they were saying similar things about Jacob Rees-Mogg, despite being, you know, mostly not from middle-class backgrounds, low, you know, low-income backgrounds. They were saying similar things to what was said about Nigel Farage before the leave, though. You know, oh, you know, he says what he thinks. He he's a good guy. He seems straight-talking. All this kind of thing. So that's kind of worrying because if you do know anything about Jacob Rees-Mogg you know that his policies are not particularly helpful to those people who are feeling like that. Sure yeah it's very it's very scary to uh, to know that that this currently fun level of fandom could turn into something uh, a, a lot more frightening. Um, it's uh, are you ever just are you ever exhausted by politics as someone who's who's sort of you know um, a, a political fan yourself i mean i i find it because i look at it for this podcast and just for life and you know and i i get constantly very angry it can be quite depressing at times i think especially when uh, there's a torrent of stories you know how do you stop it all from becoming overwhelming i do have to stop looking at it for a bit partly to get work done and also yeah because it's depressing when you're when the politics you're into is in the opposition 
it's hard not to get really depressed. I mean, the whole of the 80s was depressing. I, you know, I was born in 1980, so most of my teenage years were under Section 28, under a Tory government, and it feels very much like that again now. And then you see how the rank stupidity of some of the stuff that's being said and done by all sides. And I don't want to be an all-sides person like Donald Trump, but I just mean that just there's just loads of people who are just being very unhelpful. And it's hard just not to feel battered by it i i have my twitter set up um on my computers on TweetDeck, and i have lists and i put all the politics stuff or most of the politics stuff because obviously a lot of people i follow talk about politics but don't just talk about politics but i put about the pure politics and news stuff i put into specific lists and i have to just not look at those or not look at social media in order to not feel terrible and to feel like I'm doing something positive as well, rather than just being angry all the time. Sure. And would you say that sort of being a political fandom can be a, a, a positive way? Because, you know, in some ways, like you, you said, I... I feel like, um, and I went. I went to the Labour conference uh, this year and was sort of attending some of the World Transforming uh, stuff, which was fantastic. But like, I found that sort of some of the Corbyn fandom there really felt like it was just in need of some hope. Like, you know, it was a kind of a, a way to be optimistic about things, to kind of put your hope in a specific person and go, right, you know, I'm hoping that things go, things will change because of them. You know, do, do you think political fandom can kind of help provide some sort of positivity to it? Absolutely. I think people are always looking for that. I think even people who vote for things that seem destructive, like Trump and Brexit, it is basically out of hope. It's just like things are currently terrible for us. So let's flip this switch and see what happens. Obama's vote, vote, voting in, in the first his first uh, term, that was all about hope. He capitalised on people wanting something better than what they have. And, and that's kind of beautiful. I mean, I, I enjoy being able to make gifts of Ed Balls and Emily Thornberry and people like that. That is, some fanish stuff is really joyous, even outside of the actual activism stuff. And some of the stuff that the world transformed in a conference was just gorgeous. And then people kind of go, I've seen Sadiq, I've seen Sadiq, you know, just spotting Sadiq Khan walking down the front in Brighton. Or the people finding hope in going on the anti-Brexit marches or, you know, the FBPE people who it's again it's sort of easy to joke about and sometimes they can have effectively fandom shipping wars between them and the hardcore Corbyn fans but you know they're doing it because they're looking for hope and enthusiasm and obsessing over information about it fandom has always brought that to people and um, just a couple more questions but one have you, have you got any hot tips of who's going to be next big fandom anyone we should be looking out for <laughs> <laughs> Um, not, not individually, but I think people should keep an eye on all the moderate Tories. Um, moderate Tories, it's not quite an oxymoron, but the people who perhaps <laughs> come from more the Cameroon or at least the Liberal wing of the party, they might well get their acts together before before Labour do. And people obsess over like woke soups, you know, obviously Anna Soubry and people like that. Um, but there's definitely kind of a growing group of female Tory MPs and sort of slightly in between the soft left Labour MPs, um, yeah, most, mostly women um, who some people are aware of now, but I think they're going to cause a lot of trouble for both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn long term in terms of kind of wanting the thing that they're enthusiastic about to come to the fore. And I think people will start standing hard for them. I mean, there's definitely Angela Rayner is getting a lot of love at the moment. Mm. She's really coming up the ranks. Of somebody people love. Laura Pidcock, obviously, a lot of people love her. And Justine Greening, I think, probably going to the back benches will push her towards being a mayoral candidate, and people love her. So, watch for the women. I think. I think probably politics fandom has been quite male for quite a long time. But people are at least joking about, oh, this account is a Angie Rainerstan account now. This account is a Chi Onuura, I can't pronounce her name. Um, sorry, Chi. Um, account now. You know, every time somebody says or does something that they really like and get enthusiastic about, 
the, the, the Oprah movement, who knows where that's going to go after her speech. So. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Watch for the out. Women is a good slogan. I like that. So everyone get your Justin Greening badges uh, sorted now. <laughs> um, and finally, just the last question I ask everyone uh, that I interview is, um, apart from yourself, obviously, who else would you recommend listeners follow or check out online who either um, does uh, info and reports about political fandom or does just brilliant gifts? Like, what, who are your favourites? Who are my favourite people? Um, I think a lot of them are really popular and obvious already, but I'd say everyone should follow Chris McCrudden, C. McCrudden, on Twitter because he's brilliant and makes me laugh. And the guy liner, if they don't already. Um, and um, Marie LeConte, don't just look at her um, incredible actual freelance articles about politics but look out for the ludicrous late night content as well because that's what i'm here for political <laughs> journalism not really just being old boys in the old boys club but like relatable thanks tons to penny for the chat um you can find penny on twitter at penny b or at pennybphd.com I'll be adding the Twitter recommends that they suggested to the Twitter and Facebook this week, like I completely forgot to do with Phil Hammond's recommends last week, um, until the brilliant Cat Day added them to the linear notes that she does for this show every single week that are amazing. Um, and those notes will soon be found on the website that is almost done. Almost. It turns out it takes really fucking ages to add 80 plus episodes onto a site. Who knew? Oh, everyone. I've got the uh, next two, possibly three weeks of interviewees in the bag, but I also always need more suggestions for who to interview. And I should add that I've had some brilliant suggestions from you all, but if I haven't had them on the show yet, it's because either they're too famous and busy to respond to little old me, or they just haven't responded anyway, because let's face it, my name sounds like something a spam aggregator has pulled together. Anyway, if you do have any further suggestions, please do get in touch at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could send me a message via a tiny insect drone that will fly for miles and miles and miles to deliver your message only to land in my kitchen, be immediately placed in a glass and then thrown outside again, or worse, get eaten by the cat three doors down that we call Colin, even though that's not his name, but God, he really looks like a Colin. And then he'll get ill because he's eaten a drone and you'll be responsible for that because you're a terrible person. As always, it's probably best to email, isn't it? Brexit Last week, the EU withdrawal bill passed in the House of Commons by 29 votes and managed to avoid any of the amendments that were proposed for it, including not keeping the European Human Rights Charter because, hey, why would we need rights post-Brexit when everything will be lawless anyway as we all fight for water? Former Education Secretary Justine Greening used her new position in the backbenches to warn the government that a future generation of MPs may seek to improve or undo Brexit if it doesn't work for them. A line that was brilliant that she said it, but I doubt it even pierced the brains of the front bench because as soon as they hear the words future generation, their minds freeze until it's safe to only think about old rich people again. The withdrawal bill will now go to the Lords, so there is still some chance for change, which is a really weird thing to say about the Lords, but judging by the last few years, they fall asleep less in their debates and the commons do sir desmond swain we can see you mate we can see you president of the european council and 3d cartoon mouse donald tusk has said that the uk is welcome to reverse brexit if he wants to well actually he said our hearts are still open to you which judging by how many of our top doctors are leaving since the referendum is not something that i'd risk but his offer that the uk stay in the eu is also something that european commission president jean-claude juncker has said is possible using article 49 which spells out how countries join the eu i'm now certain that article 48 is top 10 tips for when sexting the eu with article 47 being how to get the EU to like your Instagrams. Staying in the EU is also something that French President Emmanuel Macron mentioned during his visit to the UK, but he did point out that that was only one of the ways we'd have full access to the single market. It's either that or a Norway-style deal, otherwise we can't just cherry-pick the elements we want, especially as without free movement, how on earth will we find any workers to do the picking of the cherries? But Macron did say that the UK could have some sort of special deal with the EU, with deeper relations than Norway has, which no doubt made Norway hella jealous, and I bet we'll see them all done up to the nines at the club anytime soon, trying to get their own back. But Macron's comments are really important because they take down the words of the Brexiteers in government, who both believe the EU is planning for a no deal, something that if they were, they were only doing because the UK kept banging on about making sure that was what they got. And they also take down the idea that the UK can just get what we like from a deal. 
So pretty much we're going to end up with what was guessed that we'd get, which is that we can't have what we had before. And if we do want that, we have to pay more to say even less about it all. And with deals like that, I'm amazed the government didn't just hand negotiations over to Carillion. Meanwhile, the UK is going to have restrictions on rules for immigration, trade and fishing during the transition deal after we Brexit in March 2019 uh, until March 2021, with the EU likely to extend full freedom of movement until then. So really, not so much a transition period as enough time to collect all our stuff, but we can only do it when they're in because we've handed back the keys already. And that is kind of it this week for Brexit stuff, except, well, uh, I'm sorry, but Boris fucking Johnson said last week, as well as his stupid bridge plans, that the big problem with that massive lie about £350 million going to the NHS post-Brexit that was slapped across the side of a bus, the big problem with it was that it was a gross underestimate. Is Boris going for the Hitler idea that if you make a lie big enough, no one will believe you have the arrogance to distort the truth that much, so therefore it must be true? Because if he's doing that, the mistake that Boris has made is that everyone knows he does have that level of arrogance, so now he just looks like an even bigger tool than he already is. I very much hope that when that sum is put to the test and likely fails, Boris is going to be forced to be plastered to the side of a bus for a month, while people point at him and say, that liar is a gross obstinate. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoy this show, please do spread the word like verbal um, butter. Yeah, I'm never going to say that again. And please review the show on your podcast apps. Donate to the Patreon and Ko-fi. And do get in contact about pretty much anything you like from politics all the way to your favourite migratory bird parts or best words spelled in spaghetti oops. All of it is welcome. Well, not all of it, but most of it. OK, a little bit. Anyway, you can, of course, drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group or Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com and also please do check out my comedy show on nextupcomedy.com if you can a uh, big thank you to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother The Last Skeptic for all of the musics and this will be back next week when we'll be saying yes Boris you go ahead and push to improve relations with Europe by having a large catapult at Southend that fires you to Amsterdam as long as you test it out first bye this week's show is brought to you by Henry Bolton's Boltons. Once you attach, they will never ever let go, even if you really want them to. Bolton's Boltons will attach to everything from young racist women all the way to party leaderships and really stupid, out-of-date ideas. Bolton's Boltons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.